0: Good evening. Be good and obey the police! It's in the Bible! Amen. Okay, so did that make anybody else as uncomfortable as it just made me? Um, My gosh, I don't like... No? Okay, fine. I don't like screaming at people. I don't especially like just obeying the authorities all the time. And, uh, you know, I definitely don't like telling other people, look, it's in the Bible, end of this question. Stop asking questions. Um, and I'm guessing most of us here feel the same way. To uh, borrow a line from the Wachowski brothers, of course, we all know that the reason most of us are here is because of our affinity for disobedience. And to borrow a line, yeah, it happened. To borrow a line from Scum's mission statement, we strive to be a church who asks questions while seeking truth. So, of course, it raises our hackles whenever we hear some version of just do it. It's a rule. All the more when somebody demands that we obey some man-made institution and then says that the Bible says so. I mean, that arbitrary blanket statement that I just hollered at you, the Bible doesn't say that. Or does it? Tonight, we're going to find out. I chose this passage as the one I wanted to preach on because nowhere else in the entire book of First Peter uh, is there any other passage that makes me this uncomfortable. Um, I've made it one of my rules for life that when something makes me uncomfortable, charge it head on. Uh, So let's pray and then charge at it. Father, we know that you are good. We know that you are true and that your truth doesn't have to hide behind power plays. We know that you stand up to scrutiny. We want to know you and not live in ignorance. So help our heads understand your will so that we can worship you with our whole hearts. Amen. The passage tonight is 1 Peter two thirteen through 17. It should be up on the screen, and it goes a little something like this. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority, or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. Live as free people, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil live as God's slaves, show proper respect to everyone, love the family of believers, fear God, honor the emperor. Man, so far, this does not feel like a good start to me. At face value, you know, in as much as you can ever take a 2,000-year-old letter written to a specific time and place, transported halfway around the world and decontextualized from its cultural setting and assume that you can just sort of figure out intuitively what it means without ever having to do any digging, which if you can't figure out, I think is generally never true. Um, At face value, this passage seems to be Peter saying, all right, so obey politicians because they're the good guys. Uh, I'm going to drop the trump card of because God says so. Uh, Then I'm going to put obeying God right next to obeying the emperor, you know, Nero, the guy who is going to murder me in a couple of years so as to provide uh, religious legitimation for a tyrannical human government. Well, crap. So far, this seems like a really bad idea. And as a matter of fact, I don't like it. I mean, this, this pushes a lot of buttons for me. I'm as cynical and suspicious as any member of my generation, unfortunately. So I'm constantly manning the radar for power-hungry religious abuses and weaponized privilege and institutionalized oppression, and at face value, this totally looks like all of those. And I just want to do the cop-out, right? Say like, oh, this shouldn't have been in the canon, that's a mistake. Or, yeah, I'm just going to kind of ignore this part and, you know, focus on the rest. But where's the integrity in that? You know, I, I can't call myself a Christian, somebody who is defined by... Commitment by unconditionality, and then just pick and choose like my consumer culture tells me to. So let's dig into it then, verse by verse, until we understand what we're really looking at. Let's start at the beginning. Uh, verse 13 Submit yourselves. How? What does that look like? I've always thought of submission as obeying because somebody else is the top dog right now and they're just forcing you to do it. Um, when I think of submission, I think of systematic oppression like the early American slavery system obedience coerced through atrocities. Peter means something altogether different here. This is one of those many, 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 many times that borrowing a commentary really comes in handy because this hinges on what he wrote down in Greek, not just what the English word that we translated into attempts to express. The word for submit here is hypotasso. Hypo means under, like hypothermia. Uh, Tasso means order, thus order yourself under. It was a military term, meaning to arrange yourself in a military fashion under the commander, to fit into a system of order, to know your role and rank and uh, act with humility and respect towards someone above you. What it doesn't always mean, amazingly, is obedience. This was one of the biggest shockers I found in the whole time I was researching this passage. Um, Submission and obedience definitely overlap a lot, but they are not the same thing. I had a hard time understanding what one of them would mean without the other, so I went looking for examples, and I found a ton of them in Scripture, both Old and New Testament. I've pulled just a few of those here for us to look at. We can see it in Acts 4, for example, when Peter and John are arrested for preaching the gospel. The Sanhedrin command them to stop teaching about Jesus, and Peter and John reply, Judge for yourselves whether it is right in God's sight to obey you rather than God, for we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. Obedience to men would have meant disobedience to God in this situation. Um, So they disobeyed the human authorities. But where in the story did they ever stop respecting them? They didn't resist in their unjust arrest. They didn't speak any personal attacks. They didn't claim that they were above the Sanhedrin, only that they were below God. Thorough disobedience thorough submission. And then there's Daniel and his buddies. You remember them from a little while back when we were going through the book of Daniel. They get carted off to Babylon and are told, assimilate, you are Babylonians now. Um, And they obey everything they can without disobeying the commands of God. They're showing unconditional respect. They're doing submission. Then King Nebuchadnezzar tells them, all right, new rule. You see that big gold statue over there? I'm going to need you to worship that. Well, this presents a bit of a problem, um, since we have the second commandment at all, and that's an idol. So, at this point, they have to stop obeying it. They, because of the conflict in the orders, disobey the king's orders. But look how they do it. They say, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it, and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. Wow. They're still calling him king and your majesty. That's his title, a title of respect. And their tone is calm and respectful, not combative or violent at all. But they're still crystal clear on their intentional disobedience. They just lay it out there. Your law contradicts an order from our God, and we cannot and will not obey you they never stop showing him the respect that his governmental position merits. Merits. I've really got a problem with the idea that having a position or a job title or office or whatever it is instantly merits you respect. And I feel like most of my generation would agree. Um, Somebody flashes us a badge or a business card expecting deference and respect, and we, we typically respond, yeah, no, I saw your job title. Now show me your credentials. We want to see action. We want people to earn our respect. Back in the 60s and 70s, I'm told, (laughs) definitely wasn't there. Um, They used to say, never trust anyone over the age of 30. Uh, Yeah, Larry, you're nodding. True, we have an eyewitness. We... (laughs) Millennials, however, we say, you know, we'll trust anyone. We don't care your age, as long as you prove that we should respect you first. I feel like that comes from a really good thing and a really bad thing. The good side of it is this: we've learned to value accountability, and we should. It is right to expect with those or with power or position, use that to fulfill their duties. Well, that's true whether we're talking senators or some of the Earth staffers accountability matters. As a generation of Americans, uh, we are sick and tired of talk with no accountability, with no action. We've heard the talk, the broken promises from politicians and everybody else. We're tired of talk, and we're tired of having our trust broken. So tired, in fact, that we've stopped trusting in much of anything, let alone submitting to anyone. There's a lot of risk in that, we've learned. By requiring someone before we respect them to prove their worthiness, we implicitly label everybody worth less until proven otherwise. I find myself doing that way too often, whether it's reading a local news article or, you know, catching a flash of pop television in the corner of some diner or just hearing about the latest shenanigans from my elected officials, and I think about it and just mumble, Ah, that idiot. Idiot. As if the person I'm talking about is nothing but the action that I'm choosing to see right now. As if you can justify stripping away anyone's personhood like that. When that so-called idiot is a child of the Most High God. In Matthew 5, Jesus teaches that calling someone names like idiot is about the same thing as murder. Because labels like idiot and a semi-automatic handgun are both equally capable of destroying personhood. I don't care how unjust or foolish the actions of our bosses or law enforcement or senators who can't play nice with each other happens to be. We do not have the right to murder them with our words. But I think for honest, that's where we're starting out. And there is something in me that just crawls when you tell me to respect someone who's acting dishonorably and hurting people, as a whole lot of human authorities tend to do. Fortunately for the sake of clarity, and unfortunately for my comfort zone, the passage addresses this pretty clearly. Verse 13, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority, every across the board. So far this still drives me crazy, but let's keep going. Verse 13 into 14, submit, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. Man, this is this is actually the part I disliked the most when I read the passage for the first time, because uh, it definitely sounds like Peter is saying, "No, no, no, no! Listen, you should obey anybody with power, and you know why? Because they're only going to use that power for justice." Duh. And I read that and thought, "Does that sound like any government you have ever heard of in your life?" Like, Peter, I know you're hanging out in first-century Rome and all, but could you please invent a newspaper and then read it? You know, governments are always corrupt. A lot of the time governments are only interested in justice to the extent that justice is politically popular. So I I disagreed pretty hard with this verse until I realized this is not actually supposed to be describing what is happening. Governors are sent by him to punish and commend, to, in order to. This is a description of the purpose of government, what it should do. Granted, it still begs the question, what do we do when governments aren't doing what they should do? My favorite case study of this is still the American Civil Rights Movement. We all know the story, at least a little bit. Uh, schools and job opportunities are segregated. Uh, Jim Crow laws are keeping black folks unable to vote and politically powerless. Um, murder by lynching is common, uh, and the uh, law enforcement and politicians are doing nothing to stop it most of the time. In fact, some of them are even participating in these terrible, terrible acts. Injustice is everywhere, and the human authorities are commending wrongdoers and punishing those who do right. Then come Rosa Parks, the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, the Freedom Riders, all of them. And they saw that the government and its laws were unjust, so they took up arms and overthrew the government. No, no, wait, no. I'm getting part of that wrong. Of course they didn't do that. What they did under the watchful eye of Reverend King and a great many concerned Christians, was submission without obedience. They saw a horrific injustice and recognized it as directly opposing the character and will of God. And then they used means that were fully submissive to disobey. Reverend King's famous letter from Birmingham jail explains this better than I could. In it, which he wrote as a Christian to fellow pastors who questioned his activism, he said, uh, go ahead and cue that up there, He said, I hope you are able to see the distinction I am trying to point out. In no sense do I advocate evading or defying the law. One who breaks an unjust law must do so openly, lovingly, and with a willingness to accept the penalty. I submit that an individual who breaks a law that conscience tells him is unjust and who willingly accepts the penalty of imprisonment in order to arouse the conscience of the community over its injustice is in reality expressing the highest respect for law. Jesus commands us to do specific things, of course, but just as often he commands us how to do the things that we do. When Dr. King disobeyed the authorities and when Daniel's friends and the early apostles did so, they all disobeyed from their position in society. They never stopped respecting those above them, even when that respect was clearly unearned. They worked within the system as a subordinate member, and in small and very large ways they changed the world. I know it's frustrating sometimes. Okay, all the time. To create change within the constraints of nonviolent submission instead of easier, cheaper routes like open rebellion, like vigilante justice, like, um, you know, just doing that most American of things these days, withholding respect by just delivering the old verbal backhand to put somebody in their place. It's frustrating to take the higher road and respect that they, that they already are in their place in terms of authority. Of course, having a place above or below uh, someone else only makes sense if there's some kind of hierarchy to have a place in. And if we're going to say that there is one, it's got to come from somewhere other than my wishful thinking or just societally conditioned ideas. So for that, let's go to verse 17. Show proper respect to everyone, love the family of believers, fear God, honor the emperor. We're looking at the NIV translation right now, which is generally my favorite one, but here's one sentence where I feel like other translations do a slightly better job. In what Peter wrote down in Greek, show respect to and honor was the same word. It was the verb timeo, meaning to prize or to value. So really the sentence reads something like, honor everyone, love your fellow Christians, highly revere God, and honor the emperor. Peter's choice Awards gives us a ladder of our priorities when it comes to obedience. If you're a military type, you could call it the chain of command. Uh, If you are a left-brained nerd, you could call it uh, an obedience flowchart. If if both those terms just made your eyes glaze over a little bit, uh, then, you know, shake it off and call it whatever you want. There it is. Um, At the top, clearly, is God. If you're a Christian, his word is the final word. Obey him no matter what. Then there's your brothers and sisters in the church, including leadership. They are your family. Love them well, and like any family, take care of them, because family is a priority. And then, side by side, we've got honor the emperor, or king, president, boss, and honor everybody. There's two ways you can read that bottom rung, then. You can either say, "See, government types are nothing special, or you can say, I need to treat everyone with the respect that I would give to a ruler of nations. Paul talks a little bit about this in Philippians too. He writes, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility, consider others better than yourself. The Greek here rendered as consider others better than is hegeomai, it's a word that refers to commanding with official authority. We're all to submit to one another, therefore, as if everybody was your commanding officer, your president, your boss. This doesn't, of course, mean obeying everyone all the time. Not only is that logistically impossible, but submission, as we mentioned, does not necessarily mean obedience. But it does mean showing each other the sort of respect that you would show to anyone that you view as above you in some way. We're starting to see that this command to submit to authority is not an isolated thing. It's like when Jesus told us, love your enemies. You know, he wasn't telling us, the only person you need to love is the people you don't like. He was saying, love everyone, but I'm going to talk about loving your enemies because that's a counterintuitive part that you would not have got on your own. In the same way, um, God through Peter is not saying, in humility, consider bosses and policemen as, and senators as better than you. What he is saying is, in humility, put everyone above yourself. Including these often unjust authority figures, which I'm bringing up because I know that'll be the hardest part for you. In Mark 9, Jesus tells his disciples, if anyone wants to be first, he must be the very last and the servant of all. The command to submit in First Peter is just a natural extension of this. It's worth noting here also that servant implies obedience whenever possible. Uh, if we want to do the Jesus thing, we don't get to obey laws or protocol that are perfectly just, we just don't like them. Um, That's a tough teaching for me to accept, personally. But I don't see any other conclusion that we can come to, given what the Lord has given us in these scriptures. Um, So now we've spent a lot of time looking mostly at the what. Let's talk a little bit about the why. And for that, let's go to verse 15. For it is God's will that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. Why, what are they saying? So, pop quiz. Uh, at the time Peter wrote this, uh, true or false, Nero was setting Jesus followers on fire for sport. Just yell it out. Anybody? Okay, a little... On both sides, as, as you might have predicted, uh, Dr. Blomberg is correct. Um, <laughs> it does happen a lot, I'm just saying. So, false, but barely. Uh, the aggressive persecution of Christians was coming up in the next one to four years. Uh, but at this point, Christians weren't actively being persecuted. It's just that a lot of people hated them. Uh, a lot of Gentiles hated them, specifically, in the Roman world. The physician Luke records in Acts 28:22 that Christianity was the sect that everywhere is spoken against. Nobody liked them. Uh, we know from records outside the Bible that Christians were called a lot of things. Uh, atheists, if you can believe that one, uh, because they didn't participate in uh, worship of the Roman gods or of their festivals, which were really big social occasions, so naturally they were antisocial too. Uh, They were called uh, cannibals uh, because when they got together, every time they did, they'd have a meal, and we're never really sure what they're eating, but they keep talking about eating somebody's body and drinking his blood. Weird. They were accused of incest uh, because they called each other brothers and sisters in Christ, but they'd still marry within the community. Romans thought this was weird. Um, They were called a threat to the slavery system because if slaves are calling themselves slaves of Christ, well, that creates an issue. And they were called threats to the system of government because if Jesus is Lord, then by corollary, Caesar isn't. So the last two allegations in there are true, arguably, but like atheistic cannibal incest, like really? I mean, that sounds like a rejected Rob Zombie movie title. Um, that is the ignorant talk that Peter means. Thank you for getting that joke. Nobody did in Morning Church. Um, <laughs> but imagine that you're an everyday, ordinary Roman. Uh, only thing you've ever heard about the, the ones who follow this Christ fellow is that they're hateful, antisocial outlaws who want to overthrow this government that's been you know, providing the stability you like so much. Are you going to run out and follow Jesus? Doing good, not just in private, but visibly, was a way to remove the stumbling block of people's low opinion of the church, a thing that might single-handedly prevent them from ever learning the good news of Christ. This is an extension of verse, uh, 1 Peter 2, 12, which immediately precedes the verses we're looking at tonight. Verse 12 reads, Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Peter is showing us that the way we live our public lives, as measured by the culture in which we live, by the way, not by our standards, can be a powerful apologetical tool, a powerful way to build bridges for people to know our Father in heaven. It brings goodness into people's lives, and it brings God glory. What do people say about the church today? A survey of those outside the faith uh, a year or a few back found that 72% of those interviewed think that the church is full of hypocrites. 79% think that today Christianity is more about organized religion than about loving God and loving people. 44% said Christians, quote, get on my nerves. Part of me wants to say, dude, people get on people's nerves. Get over it. But, <laughs> right? But we got to recognize, when you and I are jerks in the moment, we're not just discrediting ourselves. We're discrediting the transforming power of Christ, because if that exists, it should show up in the way we act and react. In a classroom over at Metro, where I'm studying, uh, Christianity comes up pretty often, and almost never in a good light. My fellow students, who range anywhere from the teens to uh, senior citizens, Uh, talk about uh, Christians as being ignorant and unthinking. They say we're more interested in political dominance than treating others well. They say we're out of touch with the world. They say we act like we're better than everyone else. They say these things as if they were just common knowledge, because they are. This is what people think of when they think of the church. We don't have the same allegations as in the first century, giving us a bad name. But we have one. And you better believe that giving Jesus a bad reputation can abort somebody's spiritual journey before it ever starts. Imagine a world where public opinion of Christianity is excellent. Where people, when polled like that, would respond overwhelmingly by saying, when I think of Christians, I think of people with real integrity. They don't just stand for principles like law when it's convenient. They really believe in upholding the common good. They take care of each other, and they take care of people who aren't Christians. Some of them are involved in social or political change, but unlike other activists or pundits, they don't get into those nasty partisan smear fests where they're just interested in tearing the other person down. They're all about love and respect. Imagine that. In that world where people don't have such a huge problem with Christians, don't you think more people would want to investigate Christ? Following Jesus is a huge commitment. It's a new identity. And there will still be people who will check Christianity out and for whatever reason not choose into it right then. But right now, the fact that so many Christians live pretty much like non-Christians means people don't see any reason to test this way of ours and see if it's true. They don't even get that far. They, they can't choose whether or not to walk across this bridge until we build it through the way that we act and react every day. In this passage and the ones that follow it, Peter's instructions are to the politically powerless, to women in an overwhelmingly male-dominated society, to the slave class of Rome. He calls the lowest levels of society to be the architects of its change, and of a change that is far bigger than political theory will ever be. This is the kingdom of God, entering the world not from the top, like any other worldly kingdom would do, but from the bottom. This is a subversive manifesto, for goodness sake, and we miss seeing this because we're too busy being offended that anyone should ask us to bow. But if we have eyes to see it, there is something beautiful hidden here, and I want to find it. Eric Clayton found it. As some of you know, <clears throat> Bill Nelson, Eric Clayton is the front man for Savior Machine, uh, which I believe we were listening to earlier. Uh, a.k.a. the greatest biblical goth metal opera band you've ever seen or have never seen, in the case of many. Uh, And if you have seen them live, you know it can be a little intense. For most of their career, uh, Eric Clayton performed with a bald head, total white face, and a big old jewel in the middle of his forehead, and their stage shows, during which... He sang songs based on prophecies out of the book of Revelation involved chains, fake blood, and occasionally burning the flag of the United Nations. People noticed. Some of those people were in the US government. Someone at the FBI heard about Eric's live shows and uh, they thought they sounded like a front for some kind of anti-government doomsday cult and they started investigating him. When they couldn't find any dirt on him they said, look we've already sunk this much money into the investigation. Find something. So, when they still couldn't find anything, they went after his wife, who was severely disabled after a car accident, and charged her with tax fraud because she allegedly got some part of the disability filing wrong. Because this corrupt investigation was desperate to produce something, they sentenced her to two years of hard labor. A woman severely disabled from a car accident. Two years. Hard labor. That would have made me so furious. I would have wanted to turn it into an at least two-year-long Just, you know, all-out, knock-down, drag-out lawsuit to put the wrongdoers in their place. Do you know what Eric did? He talked to the prosecutors with totally undeserved humility and negotiated a deal where he could serve it instead of her. Then he served it over weekends for five years. That is a man that knows Jesus. You know what people might have said if he had done the normal American thing and countersued, fought it out in increasingly nasty legal battles down to the bitter end? They'd see that Jesus doesn't make much of a difference in everyday life. That when push comes to shove, Christians don't act any differently than the rest of us. That for all their talk of humility and love, they don't really turn the other cheek. When they're hit, they hit back. And any talk they put up to the contrary just proves their hypocrisy. That's what they would say. You know what people say now when they hear about this? That that wouldn't make any sense unless this whole Jesus thing means something. Really changes people. Makes them more than just another pawn in the action-reaction game. Makes them better. To paraphrase this section of 1 Peter, then, it is God's will that by doing good, you should remove the obstacles to a radical and life-giving relationship with our Messiah. Live such good lives among the non-Christians that they may see your good deeds and know God to his glory and their joy. Submission to authorities is not some 0 sum equation. It's not just a matter of whether you accept it or don't and then move on with your life. Submission is mission. It's an opportunity to help change the world, to overturn the tides of opinion that keep people away from our living hope We have the power in Christ to create meaning out of how we do simple, everyday choices. Don't waste it. It is far too precious to be wasted. Stephen didn't. In uh, Acts 6, a Christian named Stephen was arrested by the Jewish ruling council under false charges of blasphemy and insurrection. He gives this great prophetic speech, and they respond by dragging him out of town and stoning him while Saul, later called Paul the apostle, oversees the killing. Stephen, now beaten bloody at the hands of a small mob, cries out, Lord, do not hold this against them. And then he dies. He could have run. He could have tried to fight back, maybe escape. He could have called them some dehumanizing names, and as wrong as it would be to do that, a lot of them would have been Accurate. He could have let his parting words be something like, may God strike you down for the way you are persecuting him. But he didn't. He submitted to an unjust authority unto death, following the example of our king, Jesus. And he chose to spend his last breath not on anger or retaliation, the way anyone else would be expected to. He spent it on forgiveness. Do you think people didn't remember that? Didn't think about it for a long time, wondering, what is this faith of theirs? It gives them the strength of compassion to do something like that. You think it didn't make an impact on them that built a bridge so that they could make the choice about whether to follow Christ? You think it didn't do that for the Christian hunter, Saul? that it didn't prepare him in some way for the call of Jesus, which changed his entire life, which is responsible for a dozen books of the New Testament and the transmission of saving faith about our Savior from 20 centuries ago to today. This is not a question of whether you have to submit or not. It has never been about that. It's a challenge to all of us to take an otherwise insignificant choice moment to moment in the day between rebellious entitlement or humble submission, and transmute that ordinary moment into meaning. The way Matt Jorgensen in Morning Church crafts beauty out of common clay, the way Deva takes a few slabs of wood and six strings and creates a flight path for the heart into the presence of God, we have that power to create meaning out of nothing, out of ordinary, mundane moments. And our raw materials are the moments we feel most uncomfortable. The times it's easier to rebel and disrespect. The times it's easier to say, I don't care if it's in the Bible, I don't want to think about it. The times we feel hurt by injustice and want to default into simple reactionary instinct. Or, we can choose to forge meaning and beauty by responding as Christ did at the cross. These are your raw materials, and new shipments arrive every single day. What are you going to build with yours? We're going to take communion in a couple of minutes. Here, when you walk up to the station, the one serving you will say of the bread, this is Christ's body, broken for you. And of the juice, they'll say, this is his blood, shed for you. You'll tear off some bread or take the gluten-free bit and dip it in the juice. I want us to do that a little differently tonight, to help us to look at communion a little differently than maybe you're used to. Communion, like the baptism, we'll have next week is a volitional act of creating meaning, of choosing to submit yourself, to order yourself under both Christ and each other. When you receive communion tonight, you are allowing the one serving you to humble themselves in that act of service. And once you receive the bread dipped in the juice, I want you to carefully take hold of the plate and the cup. I want you to turn around. I want you to humble yourself service to the next person. Meanwhile, there's going to be some people off in the prayer cave over there to pray through this challenge with you. Um, This was and still very much is a difficult passage for me to wrestle with, and that was with having two or so weeks to dedicate to it. If this still sounds nearly impossible to do in real life, that's okay. Keep wrestling with it. Know that I'll be doing that too. Brothers and sisters, I invite you, and I challenge you, to a life that is more than breaking even, more than scrambling after our rights to be respected as if that has ever meant anything in the end. I I invite you to join me in our constant search for hidden opportunities to glorify the name of God and build bridges for those who would know him. I invite you to the vocation of creating meaning out of the mundane. I invite you to a life that is greater than itself.